morning, church. Morning. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. It was indeed a uh, wonderful first week here at Calvary Monument. To give you a, a few highlights, one of the highlights, I had the opportunity to sit down with some of our staff members and get to know them a little bit better one on one. I do have to tell you another uh, kind of highlight that was interesting is, is one day I had occasion when I was walking out of the restroom, I thought, you know, I, I'm going to wander around the building for a little bit. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't have my keys. And uh, so I, I, I walked out and I, I went into a room and I, I opened up the door and it shut behind me. And as I heard it shut, I turned around and I thought, you know, maybe I ought to go get my keys. It was locked. <laughs> so uh, I don't know who, I didn't know if anyone else was here or not. Um, there was one way out, but it would have taken me outside and I wasn't sure if the front door, I had unlocked it or not. And uh, so there were three other doors and I tried the first one and it was locked. And the second one actually said it was locked. <laughs> Thankfully, the third one was unlocked. <laughs> Otherwise, I may have been sleeping here that evening. <laughs> um, but I'm learning my way around, and I think whenever uh, you're new to somewhere or someplace, you, get, you know, you got to ask a lot of questions. And so I've been asking a lot of questions, and if I ask you a lot of questions, it's because I'm learning, and it's all new to me. Uh, but it's really been wonderful. And we've together been studying the book of John. We've been going through the book of John, and we're actually four messages into our study on the book of John, and we're still in chapter 1. I told you it could be a while. And our foundation for studying uh, this book together has been that we want to study the book of John as we go through it together as a body of Christ in light of the reason for why John has written the book. And so we have been starting out each message kind of going back to John chapter 20, looking at verses 30 and 31, because it's nice for us that that John gives us his purpose and his reason for writing right in his gospel. He says this, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so through our first number of weeks together, as we've been going through the book, we have had opportunity at the beginning of John chapter 1 to examine the nature of the Messiah and who he was. We were able to answer the question a few weeks ago of why Jesus took on flesh and came to dwell among us. We saw how God was able to use John the Baptist as a light to direct others to Jesus. And today what we're going to do, where we're going to end up here in the Gospel of John chapter 1, is that we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the character of John the Baptist. Who he was as it was revealed by the way he answered the questions that the Pharisees had for him. And so our goal today is this. Today we want to identify three qualities of John the Baptist's character that might focus our eyes on Jesus causing us to grow in a greater love for him and a greater love for each other. And the way we're going to accomplish this today is we're going to target those qualities in the way that John the Baptist uh, answers the questions, three of the questions that he was asked by the Pharisees. And so if you have your Bibles today, you may turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 19 and look at verses 19 to 21. And while you turn there... 
Would you take a moment to pray with me? Father God, we do come this morning with hopeful anticipation, knowing that your word is powerful. It's living, it's active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's able to convict us of sin. And Lord, your spirit is able to use it to change our hearts and our minds so that we might better follow you. And it is with this anticipation that we come this morning, trusting that you're about to do a great work in our hearts and in our minds, that what we might hear from your word this morning we'll be able to take and use in our communities, at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, and in our homes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 21 to start. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So one of the first qualities of John's character that's revealed very early in our text this morning is that John was a man who was secure in his identity. He was a man who was secure in his identity. Now these religious leaders, they, they were rather curious individuals. If you remember, they had asked the same kind of question to Jesus at one point. In John chapter 8, verse 25, uh, they said to Jesus, they said, Who are you? And Jesus answered them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Now, I think one of the observations that we can make from our text this morning, back in John chapter 1, is we can see that each of John's answers, each of John the Baptist's answers to the questions that he was asked get more and more terse. Do you notice that? Each one is shorter and shorter and shorter to the point when they ask him if he's the prophet he's just saying no no I am not but each of those persons that the Pharisees or the religious leaders or the Levites wanted John to be had significance in their minds and there was a reason that they were asking John to reveal if he was any one of those three people in regards to asking asking if he was the Christ the expectations of the day were high these, these religious leaders, they were anticipating and they were awaiting the return of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah that the Old Testament had foretold for so long. And they so desperately wanted him to find his identity and wanted to know who, who this Messiah would be. And, and I want to illustrate for you just very briefly and very quickly how anticipation works, all right? That's 10 seconds. Ten, 10 seconds of anticipation, right? It's kind of that awkward silence. Now, now, the Israelites had been waiting 400 years. And, and there was this air of expectation that, that the gospels kind of uncover in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 3, verse 15, it says, The people were in expectation. And all of them were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether or not he might be the Christ. They wanted to know. 
And perhaps in the minds of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, John the Baptist would have been an acceptable figure for them as the Messiah. Maybe even more so in their eyes and their minds more acceptable to them than Jesus was himself. They could identify with John's father. They knew he had worked in the temple. John may have been able to identify with them and would have had empathy for the great plight that they felt that they were facing under the rule of the Roman government. But John denies being the Christ. And if John was not the Christ that they were anticipating, uh, perhaps he was somebody else. And so they ask him, are you Elijah? And, and we have to understand that in this question, their thinking really isn't that far off. Remember, these were priests, these were Levites. They were going back to what they knew. And what did they know? They knew the Old Testament scriptures. And in the Old Testament scriptures, they're reflecting back on a promise and a, uh, a prophecy that was given in the book of Malachi that says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so it's not too far-fetched in our mind to understand why they were asking this question. Well, are you this Elijah that's been prophesied about? And you know, the reality is if we're looking at a comparison between John the Baptist and Elijah, there was actually a great deal that they had in common. Both John the Baptist and Elijah wore unusual clothing and ate rather peculiar diets. It says in 1 Kings 17, 3 of Elijah, it says he drank of the brook and he ate of the flesh brought by a raven. Both had unsightly appearances. Remember, kind of talked about how John the Baptist was this man of the wilderness that wore this camel hair looking cloth garb thing that wouldn't be acceptable today probably in our eyes and um, Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8 now this is a little bit uh, descriptive maybe not what you would want to have somebody say about you but it describes Elijah as a, a hairy man with girt and a girdle of leather around his loins both John the Baptist and Elijah faced corrupt and evil rulers both did John the Baptist had to stand before Herod, who was corrupt, and Elijah had to stand before Ahab. You see, there were some similarities. Both men rebuked the men of power in Israel. John the Baptist would call the Pharisees a brood of vipers, remember. And Elijah said to his people, how long will you be of two opinions? Serve Baal or serve God? God used both men to draw many to repentance. John the Baptist's followers were confessing their sins. Elijah built a simple altar and turned his people back to God. And both men had to deal with some crazy women in their lives. If you remember, Elijah had Jezebel that he had to deal with, right? John the Baptist had Herodias and her mother, who ultimately would have him beheaded, right? And so there were commonalities. But the problem was, as was often the problem with the religious leaders of the, of the day at that time, is they were looking too deeply into the physical, and they were missing and neglecting the spiritual reality of John's presence 
why he had truly come. The Old Testament had foretold the coming of the Messiah until the time of John. This is what Jesus confirms in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says this, he says, For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now wait, right? You can see we have a a little bit of of a dilemma here. Because when the religious leaders ask John the Baptist if he's Elijah, he says no. But when they ask Jesus, Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, he is. So who is right? What's going on here? Well, the answer is both. Both are right. In the context of the question, by the motives of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, John answers in humility regarding his identity. You understand, John knew the motives of the Pharisees. Remember what the Pharisees wanted to do uh, when they found the Christ, when they found the Messiah? They wanted to take him and forcibly make him king. In, In that moment, John understood what his purpose was. As the forerunner of the Messiah, his purpose wasn't to have the focus and the attention on himself. And John the Baptist knew that in that moment, if he would have said, yes, Uh, I am the Elijah, the one prophesied in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, that they would have probably taken him and made much more of him than what he was supposed to be. So in humility, in a way to take the focus off of himself, John did not see himself in this light, in this way. He didn't see himself as as this Elijah that they wanted him to be. However, Jesus did. And Jesus identified him as a type of Elijah to the people. John would have, God would use John in a way that would be able to turn the hearts of his people back to him, back to his son. Finally, they asked John if he was a prophet. And and to that answer, he says no. And you know, in, in, in that line of questioning in John 1, 19 to 29, you just get the sense that whoever John was, it wasn't gonna be enough for the Pharisees for him to just be himself. By by their interrogation, they were going to either elevate John the Baptist to some kind of Messiah status in order to make him palatable to them, a Messiah in their own image, or they would come to find that he was nothing in their eyes so they could go back to their leaders and completely discredit his ministry and dismiss him as a lunatic. But, But one of the qualities of John's character that I most admire is that he was so secure in his identity, in who he was. And those who are used of God to draw others to Jesus are secure in their identity. It's a question of knowing who you are. Knowing who you are. Who am I? Who are we? How do we answer that question in the church today? Children of love, with a nature of love. Jesus saves us and he gives us a new nature. And our motivations for what we do should flow from this nature. And the fruit of this nature of love and what it produces are evident. And Paul talks about them to the Galatians. A life that's compelled by Christ and motivated by love is characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In today's culture, 
Men and women who are secure in their identities are the exception, not the norm. It should be one of the counter-cultural elements of our faith, that as believers, we are secure in who Jesus has told us we are. One of the, one of the things that we do uh, very early on, at the beginning of every football season, is we try to help our team define their identity. And, and we start this all the way back in winter as we get together for winter practices and installation practices because when you get a group of high school guys together that haven't played together much, they don't know who they are. And, and one of the first questions that we ask them and one of the first things that we do through the course of the winter is try to get them to define what their identity is, who they're going to be. Because throughout the course of a season, no matter how things go, whether it goes good or whether things go bad, so many other people are going to try to define for them who they are. Well, you, you, don't, you don't have anybody that can do this this year. Or, man, you just don't have a playmaker, do you? Or, man, your defense can't stop anybody. I hope they don't say that, by the way. <laughs> they might say all kinds of things about us. But we want to know who we are. And we want to be secure in knowing who we are. And you know, in our culture and in our world, people are going to try to define us. They're going to try to define us by our circumstances. They're going to try to define us by our past mistakes and our failures. They're going to try to define us by our careers, by the families that we're associated with, by our political affiliations, by our stances that we take on social issues, by the church we attend. There's so many different ways that our culture and our world is going to try to define who we are. But the character of our integrity is revealed not only by how we answer the question of who we are, but if the words of our mouths and the actions of our lives are in line with the way we answer that question, who am I? Who am I? Children of love with a nature of love. John the Baptist, he displayed zero insecurities regarding either his identity or his situation. And he wasn't the most popular of dudes. He was a wilderness man coming from the wilderness. Not, people didn't know who he was. And if John wanted to be somebody that he wasn't, he had every opportunity in this opening line of questions to be somebody that he wasn't. But he didn't go there. How about this? As brothers and sisters in Christ, as believers together, let's commit to no one getting to define who we are except for Jesus. No, no one gets to define who we are except for Jesus. And we know this, those of us that don't know Jesus, we're defined as dead in our trespasses and sins. But those of us who know Jesus, the Bible defines us as overwhelming conquerors, victorious because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Knowing who we are, sons and daughters of the King of Kings, and living like we're children of the King is a powerful way that God can use our lives to bring other people to Jesus. And did you ever notice this? Have you ever been around a person that's so confident in their identity that knows who they are? They walk with a, an air of confidence about them. They don't, they're, they're not motivated by fear 
or insecurity. And, and, and friends, that's how we can live. We can live that way. We can live that way because of what Jesus has done for us, because of what he's accomplished for us, and because of how he defines our identity. I love that John's answers to the Pharisees' questions uh, regarding his identity were grounded in truth, and our answers should be the same. And this passage doesn't only reveal that John was secure in his identity, but it also reveals for us that John had a clarity of purpose. John had a clarity of purpose. He didn't only know who he was. He wasn't only aware of who he was, but he knew what he was to be doing. This is John chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, if you direct your eyes down. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And here it is. Here's the second question. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And so the second question that we want to look at today that reveals the quality of John's character is, what do you say about yourself? And it's a question regarding purpose, regarding purpose. And again, I love the way that John answers this question because he has the opportunity here to put all of the attention and all of the focus on himself. Well, this is what I'm doing. This is who I am. But he doesn't do that. Get your eyes off of me. Put your eyes on Christ. This is who I am. John's identity was wrapped up more and his purpose was wrapped up more in what God had to say about him rather than what anyone else might have said or thought about who he was. And he goes to Isaiah chapter 40, and we want to take some time to look back and reflect on that prophecy that he goes to today. This is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, now let's pause here and let's remember what the historical context was for this passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40. Israel was in captivity to the Babylonians. Their holy land, the land of promise, laid in ruins and shambles. It had been ransacked, they had been taken, and, and their days were marked by the daily miseries of slavery and captivity. But in many ways, it was a prison built by their own hands because they refused to be faithful to God. And so we fast forward 400 some years later or, or even more, and there's this godly man who we're going to be introduced to in the book of Luke. His name's Simeon. And the Spirit was upon him, and he was waiting for consolation from the oppression of the Roman government on the people of Israel, the Jewish people who were living in Jerusalem. In much the same way that God would restore Israel to her land of promise, God would provide a sacrifice to restore the hearts of his people. The circumstances in the mind of Simeon were not so much different from when Israel was in captivity to when Israel was living under the Roman rule. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem, his name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation, the comforting 
of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon's consolation was coming. It was coming in the person of Jesus. Look at the second half of Isaiah and the quote that John the Baptist uses. This is Isaiah verses, uh, verse 40, uh, verses th- chapter 40, verses 3 and 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is the exact quotation that John the Baptist uses. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So when we look at the New Testament fulfillment of Old Testament promises or prophecies, we often see that they take us from the physical to the spiritual. But in Israel's case, when, when, when she came home to her homeland and had the physical return to the land of promise, the spiritual revival wouldn't ultimately find its application or its full fulfillment until the coming of Christ. In 586 B.C., God would level all the obstacles and he would make plain a path for the Israelites to come back and to recover their land of promise. But total fulfillment wouldn't be realized until Jesus came. I love verse 4. I love verse 4 and, and, and how it relates to the coming of Christ. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places made plain. Someone was coming. A person was coming who would level the playing field. He would make the playing field the same for everybody. And the rough places, all the places where you could hide, the rocky places, the stony places, they would be made plain. There would be no more hiding. No more hiding. Everyone would now begin at the same point in the race and find their victory at the same finish line. For many years, I coached track and field at the high school. And, and I coached the sprinters. And there's an event, some of you may have run it before and know how miserable it is. It's called the 400 meter dash. It's a sprint. And I had a coach say to me one time, the 400, it's one lap around the track. And one time the coach, a coach said to me, if you like running the 400 meter, if, that's, if you like enjoy that sprint, that's crazy because it's like slamming your hand in a car door. I mean, it's, it's tough. It's a tough race. And what often happens a lot of times is guys have never run it before, ladies have never run it before, they'll jump in the race the first time and they'll take off. And they'll start out right at the finish line. They'll go as fast as they can. And they'll get about 200 meters going full speed. And when they get to 200 meters, what do you think happens? They hit the wall. <laughs> they run out of gas. And you see them in their body. They get so tight and they're trying to finish, but they just can't. It's so hard for them. It's so difficult. Now, now, I want you to think about that. How much different would it be if everyone could just kind of pick wherever they wanted to start the race from? Ah, you know, I think I'll start the 400 meter from, uh, maybe I'll take a 100 meter head start. Or, or what, if, what if when they got to 200 meters, they just said, well, that's it, I'm done. I, that's 400 for me. And, and, and really, the way that the religious system was set up with the laws and the interpretation of the laws and what the Pharisees had made it and their interpretations of it, the playing ground was not leveled. It, it was not leveled. And you see, today, we all have the same starting line, right? We all begin 
with the same two big problems. We're all born with these same two gigantic problems that everybody shares. And, and if we go out into the world and into the community and we say to somebody, what are your two greatest problems? Where, where they, they, they might say, well, my car broke down this week. Or um, I, I fell and got hurt. Or, you know, many other things. But really, the starting line is this. We all have these gigantic problems of sin and death. That's where we start. That's the starting line. But the reality is, the finish line is all found in the same place as well. It's in Christ. It's in Him where we find our victory. He secures the victory for us. And at the time of John the Baptist, there were many who were trusting in their own righteousness. I say that there are many still today who are trusting in their own righteousness. Jesus would make the playing field level. And the Pharisees who were trusting in their own righteousness and their own following of the rules, they didn't like that very much. They didn't like it. It's not a popular message. You can't clean yourself up. And, and if you notice, where was the voice calling from? Where was it calling from? The wilderness. It wasn't calling from the center of the city. Hey, I like New York City. I like some people don't. I like going to New York City. I like going, I like going to big cities. But that's not where the voice was calling from. It wasn't calling from these high popular... It was, it was not a popular message. Not something that everybody wanted to hear. In fact, every other religion in the world teaches that there is a way that you can clean yourself up and get right with God. Every other religion in the world teaches that. That there's some way that we can clean ourselves up and get right with God. Christianity is the only religion... That stands apart saying that there's nothing you can do to clean yourself up. Only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus can declare you right before God. And when he does this for us, when he, he makes us righteous and declares us right before God, there's only one proper response. And that should be great thankfulness for the mercy and the kindness that, she, that he has showed us. And so when we ask ourselves the question, what am I to be doing? We have an answer. If you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, we're to be magnifying Jesus. We're to be magnifying Jesus. God gives us clarity of purpose so that he might use us to draw others to Jesus. So many students, so many people wrestle with that question. Why am I here? What, what am I to be doing? I've wrestled with it. There are days I still wrestle with it. And, and I'm sure there are days that you wrestle with it as well. Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? If you're magnifying Christ, if you're making Jesus known to the people that he's brought into your life, then you are doing exactly what the Lord has called us to do. In a world that's full of distractions, constantly pulling us to fix our eyes on ourselves, our own accomplishments, achievements, our challenge is to be consistently reminding people that their eyes should be focused on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. John was convinced of his purpose. His purpose was to direct the attention of those without hope to the great giver of hope. To magnify the greatness of the Messiah. And even until his death, John remained faithful to fulfilling his purpose. And that brings us to the third and final quality of his character that's revealed in the text today. 
and that is this. John was faithfully obedient to his calling. When you know who you are and you know what you're supposed to be doing, the next challenge for us then is to be faithfully obedient to doing what we know we're to be doing. This is John chapter 1, verses 24 to 28. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one of whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sand do I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So they asked him, why are you baptizing? It's a question of calling. It's a question of calling. John's baptism was different. It was a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, similar to what would have been known at the time as a ritual cleansing. But the Pharisees would have been offended because they didn't believe they had anything to clean themselves up from. They felt that they were doing pretty well. And John the Baptist, his baptism confronted people with their reality that their Messiah was near, his coming was imminent, and they were not ready for him. And so it follows the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. If the playing fields had been leveled, if salvation was now available and offered to all nations, where it says all flesh will see, what would be the identifying mark of the true believer? How would we know? How would we know who was a follower of God and who was not? How did the Israelites know? They had the circumcision that showed them. But for the believer in Christ, the identifying mark, what identifies us with Christ and shows the world that we're truly one of his, is this baptism by water, becoming part of Christ's body. The very definition of the people of God was being changed by the coming of the Messiah. The people would not be defined by their race anymore, by their ethnicity, by their political or by their social standing. The identity of the people of God would now be discovered through their identifying with Christ in their baptism. And, and friends, this is why baptism is still so important today and why we practice it in the church today. There is a pattern in the scripture that says repent and be baptized. And it follows over and over and over again in the book of Acts. It's a public way to declare that we've been cleansed by Jesus and we identify with him as our Lord and Savior. What a threatening message to the religious leaders of the day. They could not clean themselves up anymore. Circumcision was no longer enough. They were relying on it. It was no longer enough. It never really was, even though they had made it to be so. Baptism would now unite and identify a diverse people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And by the way, if you sit here today, friends, and you know Jesus, and, and you've never been baptized, I would challenge you, it's an incredible way to apply today's passage to your life and a challenge. And, and I would share, I think our elders, our staff would love to hear from you. And, and if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you haven't been baptized yet, it's an incredible way to show the world the reality of what Jesus has done in your heart and in your life. John was faithfully obedient to what God called him to do. God called him to baptize. 
He didn't have all the answers to why, to where, to when, or to who, but he was faithfully obedient to do it. And God calls us according to his purposes for our lives. Effective men and women are faithfully obedient to that calling. The question, the answer is this, knowing what you're to be doing. What are we to be doing as a church today? Calvary Monument Bible Church, what are we to be doing? What's the mission that God's given us? God called John the Baptist to baptize. What has he called the church to do today? To ensure that all who claim to know Jesus are growing in their relationship with him and motivated to continue. Friends, if we can do this together as a church, I honestly believe that we're doing exactly what God has called us to do. To make sure all who claim to know Jesus are growing in him and motivated to continue. And to ask the important follow-up question, if not, why not? That's what discipleship is. That's discipleship, right? It, it's asking the difficult question. If we come across a brother and sister in Christ who's not motivated to continue to grow anymore, they're not motivated to study the word, they're not motivated to pray, they're not motivated to attend church, to be with their brothers and sisters, it's simple for us to ask, why not? Hard question, but, but that's what discipleship is. And, and the most effective men in my life are the men that have been willing to ask me that question. Why not? Why are you not motivated right now to continue to grow in your relationship with Jesus? And so here's our response today. And here's what we find in the example of John's character. God will mightily use men and women who know their identity, children of God with a nature of love, who are committed to their purpose, magnifying Jesus, and who are faithfully obedient to their calling of helping others grow in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other. And so I wonder today, we have opportunity, how are we doing? How are we doing? Are we living as children of love, motivated by our nature of love? Is Jesus magnified in the words of our mouths and the actions of our lives? And are we walking in faithful obedience to what God has called us to? In other words, do we care enough about each other to make sure that our believing friends and neighbors are growing in Christ and motivated to continue? And if not, why not?